Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Has American Christianity Failed? Written by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we left off last week, uh, right around page 64. We are in the chapter, How Bad a Boy Are Ya? And if we had to summarize, what would we say? How dead are we? Well, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, completely dead, not partially alive, all the way dead in trespasses and sins. And um, then our sinful condition is such that we don't know we're dead. We don't know how bad we are. And so we need God's word to come and enlighten us via the law with just how sinful and how lost and how hopeless we are. Um, all of this, of course, showing us our sin, shows us our need for a savior, no doubt about it. And so God's instrument of bringing this first part about in us is the law. And again, we reflected on how the law itself is good, and it is precisely we who are not. It's not the law, properly speaking, it's not even the law that puts us to death. It's sin within us that puts us to death. Uh, Paul covers that point in Romans 7. So the law is good. It reveals sin. Sin rebels against the law. Sin is condemned by the law, but the law is good. Uh, so then we also talked about the three uses of the law, and that, that use of the law that shows us our sin, that's the primary or theological use, the second use of the law, um, the mirror. And then, of course, you have the curb and the guide. And the guide is important for us as Christians because we look to the law now um, with a new heart and a new attitude, realizing that the condemnation of the law has been put away because the condemnation of the law fell upon who? Christ. And so all who have faith in him are saved from the condemnation of the law. You can think of it kind of like, um, you know, when, when there's, uh, they're fearful that a forest fire is going to come and sweep through an area. Um, they might, they might do a burn zone to try to keep that, keep that fire from jumping over and doing more damage. Is that correct? Backfire. Backfire. Thank you. So this backfire where you've already set the fire, that fire that's going to come can't touch that area. And in a sense, that's what the cross is. The cross is like a backfire. It's like a burned out zone right around the center of the cross. When we join Christ there in faith, the wrath of God has already fallen there in that place. The condemnation of the law has already fallen there in that place. We're safe. And what forest fire is coming? Well, the end of the world. The destruction of the world by judgment and fire, the, the righteous judgment of God, where the wrath of God, righteousness of God, condemnation of the law of God are going to fall upon the whole world, save for that spot under the outstretched arms of Christ. It's kind of one way to think of it. And so we're safe in him from that condemnation of the law. That changes then the way we look at the law. We don't see the law as an antagonist. We rather delight in the law of God, and we see it as the will of our Heavenly Father. So we seek to do it. We seek its wisdom. We seek to learn more. We seek to apply it. And of course, anyone who, who's looked at the Ten Commandments for more than five minutes, or maybe studied the large catechism, you realize how much wisdom 
is packed into those commandments. And that you don't have to dig very deeply into the commandments to start getting into the whole ordering and structure of creation that God has set in place. So we delight in the law. It's wonderful. It's filled with wisdom. It really is the a perfect description of Christ who is the embodiment of, of God's will, the embodiment of the law. We see that, of course, on the cross where he fulfills the law perfectly. Even when it when God has forsaken him, he cries out in perfect love, my God, my God. Even when neighbor has forsaken him, all of mankind has forsaken him, he cries out in perfect love, Father, forgive them. Yeah. So we can see Christ as the embodiment of the law par excellence on the cross. Okay, so all that to say, um, the law isn't the problem. Sin dwelling within us is the problem. And the three uses are very helpful. Um, the three uses or three functions of the law are very helpful for us to keep in mind because we can see how, how second use, the law condemns us. Third use, the law guides us. First use, it just works in nature and works in accordance with our own self-interest. Don't do this or else this will happen to you. Okay, and that is a good enough segue into 66 and 67. In these pages, um, we're going to talk about the will, and we're going to do real short shrift, bondage of the will here, with Pastor Wolfmuller leading us. So, page 66, very top, your... Oh, did I skip a page? Maybe I did skip a page. Let's um, let's pick up at the very bottom of 64. That's what I want to do. The very bottom of 64. Okay, and, and I just want to touch a couple of things on 64, 65, and then, then 66 is where I want to really hit. Okay, so 64, very bottom. Martin Luther said, this hereditary sin. Now, what's he talking about, hereditary sin? That we have inherited that's come to us via... Adam and Eve, this hereditary sin is such a deep corruption of nature that no reason can understand it. Rather, it must be believed from the revelation of Scripture. And that reference there, essay 313, uh, small called articles, section 3, uh, article 3, paragraph, or article 1, paragraph 3. That's um, The small called articles are part of the Lutheran confessions. So we subscribe to this doctrinal statement of Martin Luther here. Wolfmuller continues, we have, to be, we have to be taught our corruption. We have to be shown our sin. Okay, and this was the precursor I wanted to get to. If you get over on page 65, after the first full paragraph... You'll see a paragraph that begins with the name Erasmus. Erasmus used this argument against Luther. They were fighting about the freedom or bondage of man's will. If we were not free to keep the law, Erasmus argued, then God would be a cruel tyrant to demand of, to demand of us things that we cannot do and punish us for not doing them. We must then be free to keep the law. Okay, maybe that has a certain rational appeal, though I'm not sure about that, but maybe it does. Um, yeah, what's the problem with that in terms of Christian theology? If it's within your power to keep the law, how much do you need Jesus? How much do you need a Savior? 
Uh, and that's really the tell that this is a great theological error, even though maybe certain parts appeal to our reason. It's, a, it's in theological error. Wolfmuller comments, the law of God, Erasmus argued, proves our goodness or at least our ability to do good. Luther's response was, here Wolfmuller says, I'm simplifying, you should read what the Bible says about the law. Paul writes to the Romans, through the law comes knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. The law shows our sin. The law reveals God's wrath. The law is a diagnostic that teaches us the truth that we would otherwise never know. We are sick, fallen, dead in trespasses and sins. We are children of wrath, deserving of hell. Okay, so this is a, this is a great I mean, in a sense, this is the entire Reformation. You can, it's like a diamond. You can look at it from different facets, from different theological angles. Here's one of those facets and angles. Um, and it's the question of free will in, re, in regard to the law. If Erasmus is right, and we are essentially good and capable of fulfilling the law, then we just need Christ to do kind of a patch job. We just need Christ to come in and pick up the pieces where we've, where we've failed. Right? So this doctrine really minimizes the gospel and the glory of Christ. Furthermore, how does this translate to good news? Well, it's that Latin phrase, facare quod in se est. Translated in 21st century English as, do your best and let God do the rest. <laughs> well, how do I know if I've ever done my best? How do I know if I've ever done that which is within? How do I know I've done enough to meet God halfway or 25% of the way or 99% of the way or whatever it takes? And so um, this theology of Erasmus applied leads one into uncertainty and despair. So contrary to that, Luther, Luther looks at the law this way. It's not like it's not God saying, hey, you can do this. I know you can do this. But rather the law is chiefly, chiefly, God's tool that he uses for sinners so self-deluded that we think we're alive and we think we're good and we think we're capable and we think we're free. And God says, okay, if you think all of that, then just do these 10 little things. And of course, we realize we can't do any of them. At, at very best, we can do just very superficial kinds of self-interested things. But we can't keep those 10 little things that... Well, if we can't keep them, then what does that say about our freedom, about our goodness, about our being still alive and capable and free will and all of this? Um, it puts the kibosh on all of it, doesn't it? And that's precisely God's second use of the law, to shut or stop every mouth, as the apostle writes in Romans. Okay, that's an, that's an essential precursor here um, for, for what's coming, your will in chains. Maybe just one more little bit here on 65. Um, we'll come down to that next paragraph, the last full paragraph on page 65. Just take the first part of this, I think. Wolfmuller writes, Keeping the law was possible before the fall of Adam and Eve. And we could add, Keeping the law is possible for the saints in heaven. 
keeping the law will be possible for us in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? It's not as if God sets this arbitrarily high thing that no human being could ever accomplish. It's not it at all. In fact, God, through his law, says, well, this is where Adam and Eve were. This is how the saints in heaven are. This is how humanity will be for all eternity. Hey, man in a sinful state, why can't you keep up? <laughs> and the whole point of the law is to show that because we're incapable, because we desperately need God's grace, we desperately need a Savior, we desperately need Jesus to come and bear the condemnation of the law and provide for us a righteousness, not our own. So, keeping the law, as Wolf Mueller notes here, was possible before the fall of Adam and Eve, but it is no longer. While the law did not change in the fall, its purpose did, or its function did, you see. After the fall, the chief purpose or function of the law is not obedience, but repentance. Yeah. And I hear chief function. We're not saying obedience isn't part of it, but we're saying the chief function of it is to show how we're incapable of obedience and in need of Jesus. Okay. Let's pause there. Let's see if you have any thoughts or reflections before then. I think we've set the stage, laid the foundation for what's coming next, the, this question of the will on page 66 and 67. Um, Pastor, this word repentance, um, it, if you could comment on it, I think I used to think repentance was something that I did. I initiated, but it, I, I, I've come to understand that I believe repentance is a gift from God also. Mm-hmm. And that uh, we just need to receive that and understand that that's happening. Is that true? Could you? I think so. Um, I think so. I would like to. I would like to put it this way. Repentance is entirely the gift of God. Okay, but then within repentance, there's sort of a, two sides of the same coin. That is repentance. And this, it's it's analogous to sometimes if you're familiar with the way we speak about faith. There's one faith, and faith is a gift that comes to us from God, and yet faith has this passive component and this active component. We're justified by faith alone apart from works. That's the passive component of faith, do you see? But is true faith ever without works? No. And so there's the active component of faith. So you see how it's one faith, but there's a passive and active component? Repentance parallels that. There's one repentance, it's a gift from God, but there's a passive and active component or sides of, of repentance. The passive is where it is something God afflicts us with, where we know we're sinners and we know there's no escape. And we know that that knowledge doesn't come to us out of ourselves, but from God and from his word. Um, there's a kind of passive, uh, um, and this is this happens, I think, if, if you think in big terms of like, um, conversion, or if you think in terms of like God bringing you down to rock bottom or this kind of thing. Nobody wakes up and says, boy, I'd really like to go into soul-crushing existential agony this morning and fear and terror over death and eternal damnation. Uh, no, that's something God chooses for you. You think, I'm going to go to Starbucks and then go into work and have a lovely day and maybe go home and 
have a glass of wine at the end of the day. And God says, I got other plans for you. You're going to be weeping and um, laying down and not wanting to do anything and repenting. And okay, so there's this kind of like, I'm exaggerating. I'm making a caricature here a little bit, um, although this can happen to us. Um, but this is, I mean, how are you going to say that that's anything other than passive? No one chooses that. There is, as our Lutheran confession state, though, an active side or an active form of repentance. And that's where we, for example, might every morning hold up the Ten Commandments, say, I'm going to go do these things. And at the end of the day, we hold up the Ten Commandments again and we say, these are the things, Lord, I haven't done. Have mercy and forgive me. That's a kind of active repentance. I mean, you're doing that. To God be the glory. To the Holy Spirit be the credit. He's the one that's that's causing you and enabling you and empowering you to with the will and desires to to do such a thing to examine oneself as St Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. We do the same thing every Sunday morning when we have the general confession of sins, I a poor miserable sinner, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then there's also that time for silent reflection. You know. And and at that time we we very frequently speak to God silently in our hearts of those things that trouble us the most. And we want his grace, his forgiveness, and his mercy to cover. So those are active forms of repentance, aren't they? Now, again, it's not as if we pound our chests and boast and say, I'm doing that. Um, we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers. So again, it's like all of repentance comes from the Holy Spirit. But there's one side where it's passive. There's a passive experience of the true terrors over sin that the law works in us. And a kind of active where the Holy Spirit inspires and enables us to examine ourselves in accordance with God's commands. Make sense? Sorry for kind of a detailed answer, but it's gotten to be that way as uh, different theological controversies have arisen, particularly in the last century or so. Well, I just find it interesting that uh, God uses two lawyers to bring us this understanding. You know, Martin Luther was a lawyer, and <laughs> so was the Apostle Paul. <laughs> so I just find it interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No comment on, on lawyers here. Um, so, just to give you a little bearing, I, Luther was a no one historically. Um, he's just a little monk. And in a country bumpkin, German town, off the beaten path. I mean, that, and we kind of lose sight of this. Erasmus was a giant. Erasmus was a giant. Um, it's hard to find a parallel in our own times because um, we don't care about theology. But do you remember Stephen Hawking? Um, the, yeah, yeah. So imagine his stature in the scientific community. Okay, Erasmus is like the Stephen Hawking of uh, the ancient theological world. He's this profoundly respected, eminent theologian and scholar. And Luther's a country bumpkin. So when they cross swords over the freedom of the will, Erasmus certainly underestimates Luther. And Erasmus is certain because he's got the entire theological establishment behind him saying, oh yeah, we're all totally free. Okay. Luther, of course, has been a student of the scriptures and holds to the scriptures no matter what. And so he comes, as, as we've seen even in this small section, uh, for example, with Romans 3.20, um, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law shows us our inability to follow it. And really, really, he, um, I think the technical theological term would be, uh, he embarrasses Erasmus <laughs> with the bondage of the will. We got to study the bondage of the will in this very class some years ago. It was a lot of fun. 
Um, but let's let's with that kind of background then look into page 66 and 67. We're going to talk about this. So your will in chains. Wolf Mueller writes, the question of free will is ancient and ongoing. Are we free or not? To what degree? What are the effects of the fall on our freedom? The Lutheran theologians made a helpful distinction regarding free will. Our will is free regarding the things of this life. Now he's going to uh, he's going to actually use this exact language in just a moment, but this is for those of you who remember our study in the bondage of the will, the things below you, the things below you. Okay. What are the what are the things below you? Well, you could choose who to marry, a free will to choose who to marry, where to live, what job to get. To some extent, I kind of have fun with that because I can't go be in the NBA no matter how much I want. Um, to some extent, okay. You've got these freedoms. You can choose what to wear and what to eat. And so we're not making some sort of philosophical statement of determinism. All right? Um, we're not automatons or robots or something like this. Okay? So our will is free regarding the things of this life or the things, quote unquote, below us. Next line from Wolfmuller. Our will is bound regarding the things of God. And again, he's going to say regarding the things above us. So this below us, above us distinction is really helpful in terms of figuring out what on earth the Bible teaches about free will. What are the things above us? Well, they're the things we have no power over. I mean, most obviously, whether we go to heaven or hell. God has that power. God is the judge. God can do whatever he wants. And there are many other such things like this. Um, but we can point out a few. Sin. Sin is a power above us. If sin were under us, then we could simply cease from sinning 100%, and that would be the expectation. But it's not. It's above us. At best, we can avoid certain forms of sins and repent of them. And, but it's this, it's this kind of ongoing uphill battle and fight. Remember St. Paul in Romans 7, the good that I want to do, that I do not. The evil that I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. Who will save me from this body of death? And of course, we all understand this, you know. Let's say you're, let's say you're trying to, um, you've got some lesser temptation you're trying to, uh, Avoid, you're going to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to be a better steward of my health. I'm going to stay away from just sugary foods for a week, okay? So you go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and on Sunday you slip up. You slip up. Did you succeed or fail? You failed. You see how evil, it, you, you get zero credit. You get zero credit for the six days you were good. If the seventh day you fail, it is so much easier to defile something than to keep it holy. All the cards in this life are stacked against good. Good is fragile. One stupid mistake can ruin a life. Can one, is there a parallel to that? I mean, think of a, think of a child who's an honor student and the parents do everything for that child and the child's just a great kid and, tons of character, and one stupid mistake, and their life is lost or shattered. 
Is there a parallel to that where your life is totally wretched and you've lived sinfully and however you want, you've been a disaster to your family and society, but if you just do one thing that you slip into, everything's magically better? No, there's no parallel to that. So you can see then how everything is biased in this life toward the evil. All right, so then if you're thinking in terms of sin, it is in fact an uphill battle. Evil is biased against us. We have a heck of a time fighting against it. Um, and that shows us then that our will is bound in some degree regarding sin. Okay, it, there's a nuanced conversation to be had there, but simply put, I think that's a fair enough treatment. Death would be another one. I could choose when to die. Well, okay, suicide maybe, but can you choose to avoid death? I can eat my leafy greens and do my exercises. Yeah, was that any guarantee that you're going to live? No. Well, you could have a heart attack or an aneurysm or a car accident, whatever else. So these things are examples of things above us. And the, let's just then say, too, to clarify, if we're talking about the, the unbeliever, okay, the pagan who does not have the Holy Spirit, is it within his power at all to fight sin? No. Is it within his power at all to stave off death? No. Is it within his power at all to turn to God? No, he doesn't even know who God is. And the things of the flesh are contrary to the things of the Spirit. So even if somebody told him by his own natural choice, he's going to say, that's nonsense. I don't believe that. All right, so this is kind of just a sort of smattering of, of things that we can think of. When we think of our will being bound regarding the things of God or the things above us. Let's let uh, Wolfmuller do a little bit more of the lifting here. He continues, third sentence into that paragraph we've been on, concerning working, getting married, caring for our neighbor, being a good citizen, and other parts of our creaturely life in this world, we have some freedom. The Lord gives us wisdom and freedom regarding questions like, where should I live? Or, what should I study in school? And whom should I marry? These things belong to our free will. Of course, our freedom is very limited. A man can only marry a woman if she agrees to his proposal. The type of job you have depends on your skills, the job availability, and so forth. There is a freedom, as the old theologians said, regarding the things below us. We sinners have no freedom, though, regarding the things above us, the things of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And of course, that is a quotation of 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So is the natural person neutral, just waiting to decide who's got the better gig, God or the devil? No, he's not, he's not neutral at all. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He isn't even able to comprehend them because they're only spiritually discerned or spiritually comprehended. Wolfmuller continues, Our will is not free to believe in God, to trust him, 
or to believe that he hears our prayers and will help us when we are dying. We are not free to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. The unbeliever does not believe in God and cannot. That is the very definition of unbelief. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Romans 8, 7. Okay, so hopefully that's a helpful distinction. I know for many of you we've covered this before, so um, it's probably reawakening those memories. But any questions or any thoughts, any, anything here rub you the wrong way or is puzzling to you? While you're, while you're gathering those thoughts or questions you may have, I'll simply add that sometimes it really helps in this conversation too to just um, take it down to the unbeliever and just think about the powers of the unbeliever. Because as believers, the Holy Spirit does indeed come and indwell us. He does, in fact, set us free in ways that we were not previously free. Um, he does empower and change us so that our wills now will to do the things of God. And so um, there is a great difference here between what an unbeliever can do and what a believer can do. So sometimes it helps us to just think, well, get to the baseline unbeliever, and these statements are absolutely true. If we think in terms of us as believers, we can see how they're true of our sinful nature. Okay, they're true of our sinful nature. All right, we're okay to move on? Let's do it. Very bottom of 66, Wolfmuller writes, American Christianity flips this understanding upside down. There is much consternation about what God's will is for my daily life. What should I do? Whom should I marry? What color socks should I wear? There is prayer and fasting to determine what God's will is concerning the small things of this life. There is constant seeking for private instructions from God regarding the things that God has put in the realm of our free will. On the flip side, there is the assumption that we are free to choose those things above us. Our will is considered free in regards to spiritual things. American Christianity teaches that we can, that we must, make a decision to follow Christ. It assumes that we are free to believe in God, to trust his promises, to follow after him and keep his commandments. Freedom is turned on its head. The American Christian assumes a free will where there is bondage and a bound will where there is freedom. It's a really interesting observation and one that, that I've shared with you uh, previously. I think, it's, I think it's absolutely true. I'm not able, as an, American, as an American Christian, I'm not able to discern God's will for my life unless I go through all these kinds of gymnastics. But I'm absolutely and positively able to make a free choice for him and discern his will for me for all eternity. So my will can grasp these things that are above. My will can't grasp the things that are below. I, I can't make a decision in the things below. I've got to figure out God's will. I can make a decision in the things above. It's got the whole thing 
flipped on its head, upside down. Um, God has given you the freedom to choose who to marry, what to live, what to do. And even, even more wonderful than, I mean, infinitely more wonderful than trying to discern his hidden secret will for your life that you can never seem to get right because life doesn't ever go right is to simply view it as the scriptures view it, as the Lutherans view it, and that is that where God has given you freedom of will, freedom of decision, he's promised to be with you in whatever decision you've made. So, you, you decide, hey, I want to go to uh, the University of Nebraska instead of the University of Colorado. Well, we all know you've just made a gigantic mistake, um, but God <laughs> will still be with you, even if you're going to be a corn husker, he will still be with you, because he's gracious. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So you can decide whatever you want to do that God's set underneath you, and you can trust that God's going to be with you. You can trust that he's not only going to bless you, but that he's even going to use the bad times, the hard times, the afflictions that come for your ultimate good in this life and in that which is to come. So there's, there's where trust comes in when, when we look at those things that God has set us free to make decisions about. It's very hard to have this discussion with evangelical Christians or other denominations because they say, well, I made the decision, but I'm every much a Christian as you are. Mm -hmm. And we're sitting there saying, yeah, but you didn't make that decision on your, well, I made the decision. It was my free will. What's the best response for that? Yeah, I think, I think there's a couple different layers here, and, and this comes right out of Luther, so this isn't the wit and wisdom of Rhodey. Okay, but the first is, so, so it would be like this. Well, I made a decision for Jesus. Well, what Jesus did you decide in? Well, the Jesus. Well, how did you come to know the Jesus? Somebody tell you? Did you, did somebody tell you about the Jesus? Did you, did you read in the scriptures about the Jesus? Oh, you did. Oh, you did. Then, then in what sense was that your will, or was that faith coming by hearing and hearing by the word of God? Faith was gifted to you. didn't even know who Jesus was. You couldn't make a free will decision for Jesus. That's the first point. The first point that Luther makes is that our wills are so bound, we're even ignorant of who Jesus is and who the true God is until the word of God informs us. Now, as it's informing us about Jesus, how does the word of God inform us about Jesus? There's, there's, um, there's this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's up in the sky. Uh, you should probably believe in him. Is that the gospel? Is that law and gospel? No. So how does the proclamation of Christ come? Repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus to all nations, right? So what, so what happened to that individual who now identifies as a Christian is the law came and worked repentance in their hearts and Faith in the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. So again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the, the, by the word of Christ. So it's not as if, it's not as if the information that comes, like here you are a pagan, you can't choose Christ because you don't even know of Christ. Then the information that comes to Christ isn't this unbiased information of like, well, there's this God in the sky and there's this fallen angel and hey, you should just, you know, just choose whichever you think is. Now, the gospel comes forward convicting of sin, to use the language of um, Jesus in John chapter 15 in regard to the work of the Holy Spirit, convincing of sin and convincing of righteousness. Well, if that word that not only ends our ignorance also convinces us, then of course you can say, I believe, but why do you believe? Because you were convinced 
Why do you choose to believe? Because God has chosen to send his word to you and convince you to believe by his word. God has already flipped your will by making his word believable to you. And thus you believe. Thus you have this psychological experience of, I believe, I choose. Okay, well, if you have that psychological experience, then use that also to go back into the scriptures and see what Jesus says to his disciples then and always. You did not choose me. I chose you. Right. Yeah, so there's my answer. There's my answers. Unless the word came to you, you wouldn't even know which Jesus to choose. Unless that word convinced you of who Jesus is, you would never have made a decision for him. So let's give glory to the word, not to your will, which was impotent on both points. It cannot free itself from its ignorance. It cannot free itself from its delusion. Only the word can come and do that. Maybe, maybe you'd have to do the legwork there for me. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, right, exactly. That is a, that is a fine example of how God converts through the word, even a very minimalistic word. I think scriptures re record like one line of his sermon. Re re I, I, I'm doing this by memory, but repent or you will all perish, right? Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't with the heartfelt Yeah, it's true too. That's true too. Thank you for that. Please. I was going to say, and maybe this... I, Mm -hmm. No problem. Take I'm time. sensing parallels with regard to we previous sessions. We had conversations about sin and repetitive sin and how the devil plays both sides and says, come on, you can do this. You can do this. You, do this, you finally do it. You fall into the sin. Then he says, oh, look what you did. Mm -hmm. And this, I feel there's similar forces at work with regard to our free will with, mm -hmm. you know, you can choose this. You can choose that. You should choose this. You do you. You figure out your life. You're important. You're number one. And then as soon as you do make a decision, oh, look what you did. You mm -hmm. think, you, you know, you mm -hmm. made the wrong choice. So is that? Yeah, correct? absolutely. 100%. And this is what's, this is what's so paradoxical. Okay. So I can re still remember this as a kid. All right. The Ten Commandments are, are the Ten Commandments freeing or limiting? We all experience it. We all experience it as limiting. We all experience it as limiting. Of course, rules limit. Do this, don't do that. That imposes itself upon me. That restricts my freedom. Right. Very interesting that Jesus flips this on its head, doesn't he? Whoever sins is a slave to sin. What is sin? Sin is anomia, breaking the Ten Commandments, breaking the law of God. So what you, what we all naturally from birth perceive as freedom. Get those Ten Commandments out of here. I want to be free to do whatever I want. Those things restrict me. Jesus says that freedom is actually slavery to sin. And the Lutherans kind of come along top of that with some other scriptures. I mean, not trying to one-up Jesus in the least, but with some other scriptures. And we say, we say, why, what is that slavery to sin? It's slavery to self. 
slavery to self. Because as soon as I've cleared the Ten Commandments away, the, the question is, well, what do I want to do? Right? And so it's a slavery to self. Well, whose, whose commandments are those Ten Commandments? God's. Here's God's will for you. I want God's will out of the way so that I can do my will. And now you see how it's binary. And so I'm enslaved to myself, to my own will, to my own sin. I'm slaved in antithesis to God. Make sense? Okay. And, and then there's the supernatural component of as we grow in faith, we become the body of Christ and body of church. So that's a unification happening. And of course, the devil in the world wants you to think, no, you're on your own. Mm -hmm. You don't need to, you know, there's something happening there, right? Yes, abs absolutely. So the devil, a part and parcel of, of what we've been talking about is how the devil isolates us. We see, we see this spelled out in our own culture just unabashedly. I mean, um, well, look at the marketing of Apple iPhone, iMac, look at YouTube. Okay, so the whole idea is you do whatever, you, I mean, even the Burger King commercials from way back when, have it your way, you know. Okay, so this catering to the desire of the individual, and then maybe a little more profoundly, you create your own reality, you create your own identity, you create your own truth. Well, what does that do? We've got who knows how many billions of individuals, not united, but individuals, all locked up in our own little solipsistic prisons. That's the devil's idea of freedom. It's complete and utter slavery, complete and utter um, fracturing of the human creature. Okay, so let's try to flip this on its head a little and do some justice there. Remember what Jesus says. Um, if you're... If you're uh, Whoever sins, whoever moves the law out of the way and does whatever they want to do is a slave to sin. Okay, well, if we analyze that just one bit deeper, we become a slave to our own passions. And we become incapable of fighting against our own passions. All right? What does Jesus put forward as the antidote? If you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Here's the irony, the paradox if you abide in those Ten Commandments of God and in the Gospel of God that forgives us our sins, if you abide in that Word, remember what the natural man thinks. That's constraint. That's imposing itself upon me. That's limiting. Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. That's God's will. And in embracing it, you're going to be set free. You're going to be set free from your passions. You're going to be set free from all this nonsense of create your own reality. You're going to be set free from the individualism, the solipsism and isolation. You're going to be knit together in one holy people of God, all sharing together in his word, all walking together in accordance with his will, correcting one another in a spirit of gentleness, repenting, forgiving, and being united unto all eternity. It's the complete antidote. So, where is freedom? Precisely in the bondage of God's Word. Where is true bondage? Precisely in the freedom of the human will. Yeah. yeah. Please. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about the Psalms, like the Psalm 103, mm -hmm. that says, We bless the Lord because of all of His benefits. And it starts with, He's the one who forgives. He's the one who heals. He's the one who rescues. Yeah. He remembers we're just dust. Right. So it's a constant reminder throughout the Bible that is so beautiful and comforting mm -hmm. to take us back to the fact that we can't do much. 
Right. Yes, absolutely right. Yeah, there's there's a creation aspect there too, where um, yeah, yeah, where where once God has enlightened us, we see the whole world differently. We see it as the psalmist does. We see it all as gift and blessing and a reflection of His goodness. If you're apart from God, if you've rejected God or you're ignorant of God, you don't see the world that way. You see the world as a place of chance and cruelty. And maybe, well, what if I was born here or not born there? What if this had happened this way and not that way? So you don't, you don't see it as a place of blessing. You see it as a place of cruelty, indifference, dumb luck, chance. Um, and so, so then, then when people come into, if that's your frame, that's your perception, the way in which you're perceiving the world, and then people come and talk about God, how interesting is that to you? Not interesting at all. A God like that, I don't want anything to do with. And that's why they reject a God like that. So once God, once God enlightens us, converts us, shows us who he truly is in the person of his son, who we truly are by, by nature of our sin, who he truly is in giving his son to, to cover our sin, to win for us forgiveness, then, then begins a process by which our entire perception of the world begins to change and continues to change throughout the entirety of this life, guided by the Psalms, guided by the Word of God that reveal these, these things to us that, hey, the world viewed rightly isn't a place of chance. It's a place of the Heavenly Father's provision. Well, what about the evil? Yeah, even that he has in his control, in his hands, and he's using for his own good purposes. So um, the heart is taught then to trust God in all things, piece by piece, and of course, our own sinful natures reject that and rebel against that constantly. But there's forgiveness, there's grace, there's the Holy Spirit calling us back. And then there's this continued increase in knowledge and speech, as the scriptures say. So, yeah, thank you for that. Great reflection. <clears throat> okay. <coughs> so, again, to, to sort of correct our own thinking over and against modern American Christianity, God has let me, God has, God has kept me free to make all manner of decisions and things underneath me. And he's promised to be with me. He's promised to back my play. He's promised to um, work even the bad for good. Um, so I simply need to entrust myself to him once I've made a decision. Now, which school I'm going to go to, who I marry, whatever, I need to entrust myself, whatever the outcome may be, entrust myself to him. All right. And then, and then in those things where I realize I have no power, or at least not complete power, as a Christian, again, this kind of changes. Um, I simply give thanks to God for his gifts, his blessings, his benefits. I pray that he would sustain me in the one true faith, that I not depart. Because that's what the devil wants, that's what the world wants, that's what my own sinful flesh wants. So then I realize that, that my own faith, my own remaining in a state of grace, that has much, much, much more to do with God than it does me. In fact, it really, properly speaking, has everything to do with God. And so I pray that he would be gracious and merciful. Remember David's prayer? Take not thy Holy Spirit away from me. Yeah. yeah. So these, these then become our prayers because we realize that if God withdraws the Holy Spirit, I, I'm going to be a raging atheist by the end of the afternoon. I mean, even shorter than that. If God withdraws, if God withdraws the wisdom of His Spirit and Word, it's, it's chaos like that. As fast as I can make it chaos. 
So we entrust ourselves to God. And you think, to, I mean, what does that do? Immediately that fills the, the human heart with a little bit of terror. Oh, this is out of my hands. Okay, analyze that. What fills you with terror? That your salvation is in the hands of God and not you? <laughs> Who do you trust more? <laughs> Who do you trust more? And now, now this is fun right here. This is fun. But then this becomes, this becomes a pattern for all of life. What I think in my life should be happening isn't happening. And then you, like, you kind of quietly get disgruntled with God. And then if that builds, you get angry with God, you get frustrated with God, you get distant from God, and all these things happen. Okay? Uh, who are you trusting? You're trusting yourself and your own perception of what should be rather than trusting what is what God has given. So this really, really base rudimentary point of we need to trust God with our salvation rather than ourselves. That is, because what's bigger than salvation? Nothing. So then work from that into all the rest of life. It isn't going my way. Trust God. Okay. Every aspect of it. Because he knows better than we do. Now, if you want a proof text or the heart of this, you probably pray it every day. Um, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Thy will be done. That's the prayer, really. All right, so, yes, please. Just one more little thing. This past week, I just really realized this true significance of, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Mm, mm. It brings this all together. It doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, in that in that. In that context where that prayer comes from. You know, he believes in the goodness of God. He believes in the goodness of Christ. But it's so astonishing. And he knows he can't believe. Yeah. yeah. So we all recognize that, right? Yeah. I believe. Namely, you've done that. <coughs> Help my unbelief. That's about what I'm contributing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's great fun. It's great fun. And this is, you know, this, so this is why like these, these topics and why the whole, the whole like theological topic of justification and being saved by grace through faith apart from works and how salvation is not in our hands, but in God's hands. And then how can we be certain of it? Well, look at Jesus. How could God give you anything more certain, anything more emotional, intellectual, powerful, anything more human and divine at once than his son laying down his life and shedding his blood for us. And that's the linchpin of the whole thing. And then from that flows all of perception and all of life and all we see up into and through eternity. Um, you just, you marvel and you think, how could, how could God have given us more? And the answer is like, I can't, I can't even fathom. I can't even fathom how, how it would be possible. There is nothing more that the Father could give than his own beloved Son. So we can be secure in him, and as we grow and mature, we can become less sure and secure in ourselves and more sure and secure in him, in all things, and trusting ourselves to his will. Of course, it's easier said than done, but it's not easy to say either. <laughs> all right, let's jump back into Wolfmuller's text. Um, 
right where we left off, in fact. The confusion of American Christianity, page 67, regarding the fallen will of mankind is especially seen in the constant call for the unbeliever to, quote-unquote, make a decision for Christ. Is this possible? Can the unbeliever make a decision for Christ? Quoting once more, have you invited Jesus into your heart? Yeah, I mean, isn't that problematic on all kinds of levels? Like, he who fills all in all, he doesn't fill your heart also? Or you have to give him permission? Remember that kind of thing where, like, the vampire can't come in unless you invite him in? So I always think of that. It's like, Jesus is not a vampire who's powerless to enter your heart and unless you invite him in. We don't believe in vampire Jesus. Also, also, what is you know? There's some there's some real self righteous and ugly implications of this. Have you invited Jesus into your heart? What are people thinking? My heart, like oh, this this you know, like the essence of who I am, inner goodness, the whole of me. Welcome Jesus, welcome into my abode. What does the human heart look like? Desperately wicked, deceitful above all things, filled with fornication and evil and thievery and coveting. So, inviting Jesus into your heart. Hmm. About inviting him into the garbage dump. Have you invited Jesus into the garbage dump of your heart? Because that's, that's more truthfully what it is. And that's not what, again, that biblical understanding of what the human heart is, that, that understanding of Jesus, it really undercuts this whole American Christian view of like, oh, inviting Jesus into my heart would be this honorable thing. No, it isn't. Remember what the centurion says? I am not worthy to have you come into my house. What do you think he would have said? If he, oh, yes, yes, yes. But you're worthy to have him come into your heart, right? <laughs> the centurion would have looked at you like you're nuts. No, no. I'm not worthy to have him come into my house. He's certainly not worthy to come into my heart. The last thing I'm going to do is insult him by, you know, if your garage is, is a disaster, do you, do you bring your guests over and say, I'd like you to come into my garage? Nah, it's very hot. It's kind of disgusting. It's messy. It's dirty. There's spider webs everywhere. Come into my garage. No, of course you don't. I, yeah, this, this whole idea is predicated upon a, on a whole bunch of spiritual nonsense in regard to the human heart. The idea that Jesus condescends, the idea that Jesus deigns to enter our hearts is enough, is enough to profoundly humble us. It's the picture of, of the incarnation where Jesus comes into the world and is laid in a manger in the abode of animals with animal dung and straw all around. That's how Jesus enters our world. That's how Jesus enters our hearts. These are unclean places, unworthy places into which he comes by his pure grace, by his amazing condescension and love that he would save us from ourselves. So have you invited Jesus into your heart? Pardon me if I kind of throw up in my mouth a little bit when people say that, um, because I know what the human heart is. Jesus tells me what the human heart is. It's no place. It's no place where you would, you would think in this way. Um, Jesus enters our hearts of his own free will, of his own graciousness. All right, so have you invited Jesus into your heart? This question gushes out of American Christianity. Have you received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? 
I mean, it's kind of, that's a terrible theology too. Isn't he my Lord and Savior, whether he's my personal Lord or Savior or not? Is he not Lord, whether I believe in it or not? Is he not the world's Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, whether I believe in it or not? As if, as if he needs me to, uh, so, sort of like ratify him with my own free will. Oh yes, you, I guess you can be my Lord and Savior. I mean, it's kind of like this foolishness of like, not my president. So, yeah, good luck with that. He actually is. It doesn't matter who he is. He is. Okay. You, you don't get to go up to Jesus and say, well, I guess you get to be my Lord. <laughs> oh my gosh. He who made the heavens and the earth, who, he who is enthroned in heaven between the cherubim, I guess you can be my Lord. <laughs> I mean, this is to be mocked. It's so stupid. It's so stupid. It's so satanic. Uh, and it's Satan having a laugh at our expense because we're so stupid. Um, yeah, and your Savior. Christ, the Lamb of God, who, who took upon himself the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you're going to say, yeah, I guess, I guess I'll add my sins into those. I guess I'll do that. Yeah. I mean, this is so preposterous. Please. So... If we're to think about this, it seems like if someone is grappling and trying, you're asking to come to faith or seeking God, it's up to him to send the Holy Spirit. It's up to him to influence the circumstances of their life. And then, of course, at the same time, that's right when the devil rushes in and feeds you with, now you're in charge, you have to make the decision. I mean, so how how can we, I mean, obviously we can pray for people, mm -hmm. but if they're enmeshed in this wrong thinking, how can we lead them or help them if we can? I mean, maybe yeah. it's not up to us, but... Yeah, of course. I, I honestly think um, by coming up with just biblically informed quick answers you know it's kind of this kind of thing of like well how did you choose someone of whom you were ignorant and if you weren't ignorant then you weren't neutral anymore because you had been presented with a compelling message were you not and so right so it's just these kinds of and 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 i mean i wouldn't maybe be as abrasive as i'm being here um if i'm dealing with someone personally uh, but but poke holes in this stuff poke holes in this stuff why would jesus want to come into my heart you know, um, if I don't receive Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, does that mean he's not my Lord and not my Savior? Of course, he already is. I just deny it. I reject it. But he already is. So I, I think it's, I think, you know, and in many respects, too, I think Christians are, they're kind of deluded by these things. They're true Christians. They believe they're just confused and deluded by this false theology, which all this, by the way, all this is a brand new way of talking. If you go back any time in history at all, Christians aren't talking about making a decision for Jesus. Christians aren't talking about um, inviting Jesus into your heart. Christians aren't talking about, is Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? They're as asinine to ancient Christians and global Christians, probably, as they are to us here in this room, because it just doesn't make any sense to think this way to talk this way um, nobody ever talks this way so i mean how often is paul saint paul going around the ancient world saying have you made a decision for jesus Not a single line there's nothing even close to that so they're going around they're proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in jesus name um, that's the that's the rhetoric that's the drive so yeah, all of this stuff. I mean, have you dedicated your life to Christ? Like, that's a pretty poor dedication. So I think just having fun with this and poking at this, I mean, 
because there's a lot of idolatry and a lot of inflated ego behind all of this. I mean, who am I? What is my life that I would dedicate to God? The filth bag that is my life of sin. Like Job, I am afraid of all my deeds because even the good things I have done are as like filthy menstrual rags. Like, I'm not dedicate that to Jesus. Um, I, and the, what Christian, what Christian could stand and say with a straight face? I give, I give you my life, as if that's some kind of honor. I mean, I give you my life in the sense of like, I give you my soul, save it. Transform me. Lead me into the grave. Let the me that exists now die forever and bring out the me that you would have for all eternity, the me that you foresaw before the foundation of the world. Make me into your image. If, I mean, if that's somehow what you mean by dedicate your life to Christ, then fine. You know, but, but yeah, I, there's just so much arrogance behind this theology and so much bad theology behind it. Uh, the assumption of our goodness, the assumption of our worthiness, the assumption that we're giving God something or showing Christ hospitality by inviting him into our hearts or, you know, it's just all right there in the language and it's all, just, it couldn't be more noxious. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think Christians, Christians don't mean these things when they say these things. This is how they've been taught. So we want to be gentle with them. I think that that's, I mean, I might be a little more ornery with a pastor or something. But, you know, you want to be, generally speaking, be really gentle with people, love people. You don't have to correct them all the time. When I don't, when people come to me who I don't know and they're Christian people and they say, I made a decision for Jesus back in 1979. I do not spit out my coffee and jump all over them. Um, you know, I just accept that. It's fine. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say anything. Usually, um, if it's a friendly conversation or a lengthier conversation, I'll try to poke holes or I'll try to say, hey, where in the scriptures can I find language like that? Or, you know, just try to have fun with them a little and get them to see something. Because the, the goal isn't to be right or to win an argument. The goal is to get people further to heaven. The goal is to get people protected from the evil one who's going to come. And then frequently, I, we run into people too where the evil one has come and he stripped all this away and they don't know like, I have to make a decision for Jesus because the first one didn't stick. In fact, if I'm being honest, the first 19 didn't stick. I'm, I'm at a point where I need to make a decision for Jesus again, again. And that's where we can come in as, as Lutherans with this rich biblical theology and just say, you know what? Maybe the paradigm's broken. Maybe your way of thinking about this is what's amiss. Maybe think about it this way. Because again, the point is building people up onto eternal life, protecting them from the evil one. That's the whole point of theology. It's in service of our neighbor, not to bash our neighbor or beat up our neighbor. So, um, so understand me rightly. And that, generally speaking, is my approach as I try to approach people with these things. There's a time and a place to be harsh, of course. Um, but, but generally speaking, that's with real stubborn people or people who should know better. Jesus is quite, quite, abrasive to Nicodemus when Nicodemus doesn't understand some things. He's a teacher. He's a teacher. Okay. Any other? Uh, yes. Uh, yes, please. I see a, a hand up here. Oh, we're over time. Um, do you want to be on the record? No. Okay. <laughs> let me let me close up class and then and then we'll just continue our conversation. So feel free to go if you need to. Um, next week, we'll just pick up with this theme again as we're working our way through uh, How Bad a Boy Are You? And Pastor Wolf Mueller's text, Has American Christianity Failed? The Lord be with you.